everybody. My name is Fadl Saleh, and uh, uh, Saud invited me today to the Surge podcast uh, to present an interesting case that I recently encountered, encountered uh, during my uh, work covering trauma service. And um, great, thanks for coming over, Fahad. Uh, Fahad is one of our chief residents, and um, it just so happens that our theme was penetrating neck injuries. And he was telling me about this case, so I figured that we'd share it with our audience. It's a great honor to have you and Haifa, one of our ENT residents in our local Kuwaiti program, uh, talk to us about how they handled this case. Go for it. Yeah. Please take the mic, Fahad. And okay. I'll ask you some really difficult questions and embarrass you afterwards. Okay, good to know. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to start uh, with this uh, case. So it's a case of a penetrating neck trauma. Uh, so um, joining me is also Haifa. Um, so of disclosures, consent was taken from the patient to use the images for educational purposes. The case itself is a 38-year-old male brought to the emergency room after sustaining what, is, what was told to as a self-inflicted laceration to his neck. Um, so even though this is a cleaned and prepped and draped patient uh, uh, in this image, but pretty much this is exactly what we saw upon entry of the emergency room. So um, he was in agonal breathing. He was flexing to painful stimuli. He's a bit tachycardic at 110, and his blood pressure was 90 over 60. He was satting at 85%, and his entire clothes were covered in blood. So as we always do, we started our ATLS protocol, primary survey. The main thing was securing the airway. Um, so we gave him um, a shot of ketamine and lidocaine to suppress the cough and pulse. And you can clearly see uh, the vocal cords in that, uh, through that injury. So we just put the uh, 7.5 uh, sized ET tube through the, between them and into the trachea and secured it. So this is a side view wow. after we inserted the, yeah. That is amazing. Uh, you can see right through the cords there. Yeah, you can see and oh. you can see the, 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 what we consider as the hypopharynx in, in this area. And this is actually a tops eye view. You can see the, the, the pharynx. You see the of the trachea through it over there too, right? Yeah. Mr. Scarlet yeah. Sheets. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So, uh, after that, we stabilized the neck. So uh, we, uh, after applying some dressing at the wound, making sure that there was no active spritters, we put a C collar and we passed the tube through the middle opening of the of the of the collar itself, and we fixed the tube on the collar using tape to make sure it's stabilized. And then we proceeded with our the rest of our assessment. So he was right now satting in 100% on the ventilator. His saturation after receiving a bolus of crystalloids was a blood pressure of 110, systolic over 60, heart rate went down to 90 over 100. We uh, withdrew some blood samples and sent it for our routine labs and uh, cross-match and tox screen as well. His uh, GCS pre-intubation was 5 out of 15 because he was flexing uh, with pain. Uh, however, on our later assessment, he was sedated on propofol, but his pupils were both equal and reactive. And upon exposure and removing all of his clothes, clothes we saw multiple lacerations in both of his upper limb, but there were more cuts on the left side and they were deeper. So um, we did our adjuncts, we did our chest x-ray, we found that the tube that I placed actually went into the right main stem, so we had to pull it back a little bit. 
And I also did the fast. All four, four views were negative and there was no any signs of uh, intra-abdominal injury. So after that, uh, this is actually not the actual chest x-ray of the patient. It's just a, a, a picture I found on the internet, but it represents the tube going you can see going into the right main stem. So we had to pull it back, but it was very subtle like this one. So we just had to pull it back a little bit. So uh, afterwards, decision was made to take the patient to the OR to secure the wound, secure the airway, and make sure everything was, uh, was fine. So uh, in, in terms of talking about neck zones, this injury is technically classified as a zone two because it's between the cricoid and the angle of the mandible. But if you see on the right side here, you can see that the, the dotted red line represents the actual cut itself. And it's between the junction between zone two and, and zone three, just above the thyroid cartilage. And um, from an anatomy point of view, the cut itself was actually through the thyrohyoid membrane above the thyroid cartilage. And if you see the picture here on the right, it's, uh, this is a posterior view of the larynx, that the cut was actually above the, the epiglottis here, and the epiglottis was intact, was not injured. Uh, so if I'm going to classify this injury being which part of the upper airway, you, we would call it as a larynx or like a, a laryngopharynx type of thing, depending on which reference you're you're pretty much using, but it's a bit away from the esophagus and the, the actual trachea. Uh, so also in terms of anatomy, if we talk about the, the different uh, fascias, this is the image that we see, the, the, the cross-sectional image, and we see that this is the superficial investing layer with the platysma, uh, with the platysma and the, the strap muscles in, inside. That was breached in this, uh, in this patient, however, the pretracheal fascia is a bit away because if we see this sagittal view, you can see the, the blue line representing the superficial investing yeah, layer. That's right. It's, it's a bit of a distance. When you take that trajectory that you're showing, yeah. You're, yeah. you're not really pretracheal. Yeah. You're, you're so, more so at the base of the mouth. I've had yes. to put a slur way through that before. Yeah. I talked about an earlier episode. I think uh, I taught you guys that too. Yeah, you did. Um, it, it's a... It's a very finicky area if you don't know what you're doing. But once you know what you're doing, or once the patient's done it for you, uh, it's pretty yeah. easy to repair. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, yeah. it's, it's literally like you're closing up a wound layer by layer. You know, it's not, so, yeah. it's not a very so, technically demanding dissection. Maybe. So that was pretty much what happened because that being said, being very far away from the esophagus and the, the actual trachea, our operative approach was a bit like, Different. We didn't do our usual formal exploration and encircling all the esophagus, making sure there was no injury because it was away and the trachea itself was also intact. So we just focused on this area. With that being said, I will hand over to Haifa, which she was our ENT resident in charge of operating on this patient. So, okay. yeah, the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Fahad. Uh, so in our case, uh, as, you said, uh, as what you said, then, uh, we had a clear cut and uh, we knew that we are dealing with the thyrohyoid membrane. So 
first we did our neck exploration, which was limited, but we did this anyway. Anyway, and uh, we did. Uh, we there was no vascular uh, injury. There is the common carotid and the internal jugular uh, jugular vein was intact. There was minor termin uh, bleeding from terminal branches that we controlled, and. Uh, we just uh, we, uh, did some debridement for uh, the digitalized tissue. And after that, uh, after cleaning and irrigate, uh, doing the, the irrigation and cleaning, we did uh, the closure. So for the closure of the uh, larynx, uh, we were closing uh, the submucosal layer. And uh, after that, it's like any head and neck surgery, we closed uh, the strap muscles. Then the plethysma, then the subcutaneous, then the scan. And uh, for the skin closure, it was with the uh, staples. And um, that's it. Yeah, and um, just to add, uh, while they were doing the, their um, repair, uh, we did the bronchoscopy through the, the endotracheal tube, and we found that the, lar the larynx itself was intact. Uh, the, sorry, the trachea was intact and there was no injuries. And uh, afterwards, we, there was a discussion on whether to, to do a tracheostomy or, or not. And uh, we elected not to do one as the trachea was intact and the injury was higher up and away from the trachea and above the vocal cords. So I want uh, to add one point. I forgot to say that we didn't explore uh, the recurrent laryngeal nerve as well uh, as what we usually do in a head and neck surgery. Yeah, because, it's very too high for it to be worth it. Yeah. If anything, yeah. you probably have a super laryngeal nerve, I'd guess, but you know. Yeah. yeah. So I we didn't do the exploration. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, I read about it, and, like no one should do a uh, nerve exploration in such a case. Very rarely in the trauma literature have, has that led to a good outcome. You're more likely to yeah. damage things because it's a disrupted plane, you know. But uh, I'm sure that you, you've, uh, you've seen more than a couple of these being an ENT surgeon. Uh, it's very hard to see these things because it's not a prepped neck. It's not an extended neck. It's yeah. a very malpositioned patient. So exposure will be a challenge, I guess. But, you know, yeah. I yeah. wouldn't, so, as a trauma surgeon, I really would not fish around for the nerve in these cases. Yeah, yeah. even in the NT, we, the, the, in our textbook, there was no exploration for the nerves. Yeah, so uh, of note, we, when we actually changed the ET tube um, from the, the, the one we placed through the wound uh, to an oral tracheal intubation, we used a ringed tube with the yeah, metallic rings. I to ask you, how did you go about that process of changing the ET tube? So, did you um, the second tube through? Did you put a tube exchanger down, a bougie? Uh, so pretty much what we did, because... Um, the, 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 the neck was open, so we pre-oxygenated the patient. We made sure that his sats were 100%. And then as soon as we removed the, 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 one, the one we placed in the, uh, the emergency room, we used a laryngoscope and we just passed the tube through it. And then with the help of Haifa uh, and the, uh, the ENT consultant, we just passed the, like they helped us with passing the tube through the trachea. Because the, the through and through, basically. Yeah. So yeah. So it was just like a uh, like through and through, and then we did the the bronchoscopy through the through the through the ET tube. Nice, nice. Afterwards, so um, 
while Haifa and the ENT team were uh, Oh, wow. Focused. This guy did a real job. He even managed yeah, to yeah. make a couple of veins. That's great. Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. So focusing on the neck, I was focused on his uh, arms because uh, on the left side, he had a, actually a cannula placed in the emergency room on the dorsal aspect of his left hand. And as soon as you start injecting saline, flushing through that, you can actually see the 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 saline actually flowing out through one of the injured veins through one of the cut wounds yeah so that's a great diagnostic test that we do in trauma yeah if if we have a wound we try not to use the same side but yeah. uh, this young gentleman seems to have slashed both wrists and both arms yeah. from what you're telling me and what you're showing yes. me on that side yeah. so i would say that you know i i put two large bar ivs and if they don't work i'd go for a central line well yeah but it's so, a very good diagnostic test so it's like in in this case we we ended up putting a central line, a right subclavian line for him. Uh, but the issue with securing two large cubital fossa lines, because he actually injured both cubital fossas, and they were both uh, had, like, had some uh, lacerations and we didn't know if they had any uh, uh, vascular injury. But on the left side, the cephalic vein was distally uh, injured next to the wrist. So we just did proximal and distal control and ligated it. And on the left antecubital fossa, the, there was a large deep laceration involving the, the biceps muscle, actually. But however, the, the, the cubital fascia was actually intact and the pulses were also intact. And there was no expanding hematomas or anything. So we just approximated the biceps. And I used the slab to fix his arm in a semi-flexed position, not to put too much tension on the bicep approximation. Nice. And on the on on the right side, he had multiple superficial lacerations, where which all were primary closed. And um, afterwards, the patient was uh, decided. We decided to go for a whole body CT in Andrew. And uh, the reason we did a whole body CT for this patient, well, first we wanted to do the Andrew to make sure that we didn't miss anything in the neck and in the like in the vessels and. Uh, and if there was any extending injury that went into the mediastinum or something that we missed. But doing a whole body CT, including the chest, abdomen, and the brain, because the trauma itself was not witnessed. On collateral history, it was a vague history. We, didn't, we do not know what exactly happened. So just to make sure that we do not miss anything and we do not miss any injury for this patient, we did a whole body CT. So this is the angio part of the CT. And as you can see, the subclavians are going in the upper limbs. And the angio was done all the way up to the wrists and both polymer arches were intact. And just within the area in the box, you can see both carotids and the bifurcations being very well intact and no signs of injury. So we were happy that the neck and the expiration that we did was, was good and we didn't miss any injuries here. But when we went to do the CT of the chest, we found that, that he had actually a moderately sized pneumothorax on the right side. So even though he didn't have any injuries to the chest, um, I suspect that probably because I passed the tube into the right main bronchus and pressure of the ventilator just caused some- I wouldn't feel too guilty, my friend. Um, but, it, it's been described in the literature from neck injuries in which emergency intubations have happened. Yeah. They might get a pneumothorax, right? Yeah, it's because so, it's a panic situation. People are using very high pressures. Uh, you're sure trying to drive the patient, get them through the day, and you know, who knows? It could have even been a communication through the pleura, for all you know. Yeah, because that's a fairly sizable wound. 
Yes, I do agree with you. It's very high up, but it's a fairly sizable wound. So I, I, w- I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't uh, feel too guilty about the whole thing. Well, it just did give us an opportunity for Haifa actually to put a very perfectly placed uh, intercostal drain. You can see here going laterally Excellent. all the way into the to the apex. Had a great help. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can see the right. Who the ENT surgeons put in chest tubes all the time? They do their <laughs> autonomies over here. That's how they do thymectomy. <laughs> Yeah, and you can see this is the right subclavian that we placed in the OR. This is the ring tube that we used to exchange and uh, you can see the NG tube that we passed in the OR was a bit high up. So we had to push it down into the stomach later on after the x-ray. And this is his x-ray on post up day five. You can see the ET tube was removed. He was extubated. The intercostal drain was also removed, and the subclavian uh, line was later removed the same day. That's and good. this is him on extubation on the floor in the ward, and he was doing well. So on post-op assessment, his voice was normal upon extubation, even though we were planning on doing a, a formal vocal cord assessment. He was actually talking fine and vocalizing normally. So we didn't do a full-on vocal cord assessment. However, he had some difficulty in swallowing pure solids and pure liquids. And so pure dry food and some pure liquids, like very liquidy water and like very thin uh, light fluid, juices. Yeah. Yes, clear fluids. But he was very well tolerating semi-solids. And because of that, we did a gasographian swallow. And as you can see, there was no leak in the neck where this, where the surgery is. However, there was some aspiration to the right lung here, you can see. Yeah, so, he survived to get that aspiration, you know. Hmm? A, he survived to get the aspiration. So I wouldn't yeah. about that yeah. one Yeah, so basically on post-op day 10, after we had removed all of his king clips and the sutures in the upper limb, uh, in his both upper uh, arms, he was discharged and he's currently undergoing swallow and speech rehabilitation and uh, appropriate psychiatric care. So, so this is um, a similar case that me and uh, Haifa were discussing, actually, of a similar uh, cut through the thyroid membrane. So in this case, their image, if you can see here, This is the thyroid cartilage. So it's very similar. It's a high up injury, but on, uh, in this case, they actually had an injury to the the thyroid cartilage and an injury to the, um, to the epiglottis. And the patient was actually, uh, very hypotensive and, uh, what they did was, yes. And as you can see, uh, like blood is everywhere. So they ended up just doing damage control. They put an AT tube, took him to the OR, they put a tracheostomy, did some uh, primary control of the bleeding, and they just did the reconstruction uh, at a later date. So they didn't do it in the, like us in the, from the first get-go. Uh, but it's a very similar cut wound uh, that they had. So um, I'm just going to discuss a few things uh, in the literature when I was like, reviewing um, these facts uh, about the penetrating neck trauma. So I, this is the Western Trauma Association algorithms. So Even do you feel like, that guideline changes anything in this particular case? So in this particular case, it doesn't really. So that was the main uh, 
thing I wanted to talk about is that, yeah. like, you know, um, I don't I'll, think... I'll be honest with you, I, in my practice in 2020, and, you know, all due respect, everybody can form their and cater their own practice. You're a chief resident now, you're practically an attending. My expectation is that you'll have your own opinions. Uh, Haif is an ENT resident, so... Uh, by the way, uh, guys, in Kuwait, unlike in uh, other uh, places, you don't go into a program directly. So uh, Haif has probably done two to three years post-grad, yeah. post both general surgery and ENT, before she got into her ENT program. And, you know, w when somebody's done that much work before they get into a program, they really want to do that, right? And so she probably has her own opinions. But I think in 2020, with the CT scans that we have, uh, our ability to scope, like in 1996, surgeons didn't really scope, right? We kind of did, but we didn't. We preferred direct laryngoscopy, but we kind of didn't. It was this whole confusing mess uh, that really made no sense. And the GI guys thought that they could do it better, but it, it was a mess, right? But now we all scope. It, it's a minimum requirement for me to sign your certificate or whatever is that you scope. Uh, certainly was it when, when I trained and that was like eons ago. So it must be the same right now. We can all read CT scans fairly well, like you demonstrated, and we all kind of know the anatomy. So I would contend that unless the patient has hard signs, you're going to investigate them, no matter what the outcome is. Sure. sure. Whether it's zone one, two, three, X, you're still going to investigate them further. And so sure. your decision making is based on hard signs, nothing more, nothing less. That's yeah. my contention. At least that's that's been my yeah. recipe for how to address these these cases. So yeah, so like like going through these algorithms, I can see that like zone one, zone two, zone three didn't really make a like going through this algorithm doesn't really make a difference in the way that we approach the the surgery. So we know that the patient had an unsecure airway with an open airway, so he had to go to the operating room uh, for that. But and we looked through the the injury like for the any vascular injury, but like in terms of zone one, two, and three all of these patients would have had a CT scan done if they're stable and they would have been operated on if they were unstable. So the concept of doing like, you know, managing zone one, two, and three in terms of, um, you know, your operative approach or like how you would manage them in the ER, I would say that the only difference would be in terms of who you want to call for help. You know, yeah. in terms of like zone three, I might, you know, I might be wanting like a neurosurgery or like an, like or yeah. an endovascular. And someone thoracic would need it. Yeah, someone if if I need to open the chest. But and in a zone two, I might need the uh, the help of an ENT surgeon. However, we were lucky to have Haifa with us on the trauma service, so we didn't really need to call anyone. I was covering your Okay. Yeah. So 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 I don't think in terms of you know going through the zones really does. Uh, make a difference. Uh, there's a lot of talk about doing a, a zone-free approach in terms of investigating and managing um, penetrating neck injury. However, the problem with this is that all of the guidelines, all the consensus, all of the papers that have already been published are based on zones. So it's very difficult to find a proper yeah, consensus. You know what the beauty of trauma is? One of the best things about trauma is? Yeah we have very little level one evidence. And whenever yeah, we have level one evidence, it's the only thing that we learn off by heart. Yeah, Everything like, else at our conferences, we keep arguing day and night, trust me. So yeah, so but like, you know, given like the East, 
recommendation for penetrating injury of zone two, but they have a level one evidence in here in that selective operative management and exploration of these injuries actually have equivalent diagnostic ac uh, accuracy to actually imaging. So, uh, but however, they do recommend that a high resolution CT angiography offers appropriate diagnostic accuracy with minimal risk, making it the initial diagnostic test of choice when available in the, with definitely the stable patient, not the unstable patient. So uh, this is one of the few level one recommendations that I found when it comes to managing uh, penetrating uh, neck injuries. And you know, zone two is the most common injury that you will encounter, and this is the one, one of the main ones. And uh, of note of something that I would have added to the case probably is, is after I was looking through the, sorry, after looking through some of the literature, I found this paper which had, which had 33 patients. And of these 33 patients, they divided it, like basically they divided them into patients who had like endoscopies to assess for uh, esophageal injuries and patients who just went through contrast images imaging. So which meant they gave them gastrographene if that was showed no evidence of injuries or leaks, they proceeded with doing um, uh, a barium. So the proper standard techniques of investigating doing a contrast fluoroscopy. And in this paper, they found that uh, endoscopy, actually the scopes, uh, revealed a lot of the upper esophagus, upper airway, pharynx, larynx injuries uh, that were missed in the contrast images. So anything that is in the or oral pharyngeal area or in the hyperpharyngeal area were actually all missed in the contrast study, but were all like detected in the endoscopy. So what I have done an endoscopy on this patient, well, it's very difficult to do. Definitely if I'm going to do it, I don't know if I'm going to do it through the through the mouth, I would have actually probably done it before they did the repair. You can but, do it by the nose too. Yeah, but like the problem is I don't want to force uh, a scope through the, the repair that was done to cause any injury, but like we knew where the injury was, it was higher up and it was away from where the, the I would say that the esophagus would be, but uh, we did check the esophagus in the the gastrographing swallow that the patient did later on, which was showed an intact esophagus. But this is a nice study to keep in note that, like, as you said, you know, we should be more and more accustomed and very flexible in scoping these patients. So bronchoscopies, uh, you know, and upper endoscopy, you know, like just do them whenever you have the chance to do them, just do not miss anything. So if there would be one caveat or one thing I would do what I have not done, for the patient, uh, I would probably do an upper endoscopy on that patient. And so that pretty much brings us to the conclusion, which is basically penetrating neck trauma needs you to act fast and act methodically. And even though imaging can help, the gold standard is operative exploration. And you have to really know and really prep and read about it before you actually encounter a neck and you don't know what you're doing. All right. So, yeah. Great talk from the both of you. Thank uh, you very much. Go back to the first slide for a sec there. First slide. The very first picture because I liked it. This one. Yep. Yeah. I really like that picture. I like it for two reasons. 
the first okay. is you got an ET tube through, so yeah. you can see the whole wound. And sometimes people don't do that. Yeah, and that's the, the top of the and ET that, tube. And that's, and that's the key. The second thing is you clamped off any bleeders that you'd seen directly there, but you didn't blindly clamp them. You could tell that you had two pieces of gauze down there. You're putting pressure at the edge of the skin, and you were looking for things that bled and clamping down on them. I just wanted to ask you strategically, obviously you went for vascular injuries first and then you went down and addressed the arms, the hands and the legs. Yeah. Strategically, how did you provide some temporary bleeding control in the upper limbs? So, uh, so pretty much, you know, from the, the get go when we did our exposure for the patient and the trauma bay, we found like, I can see that like there were no like like pulsating arterial bleeds or anything that might indicate like a like a an actual arterial injury right. so yes. it was easily uh you know taken care of like with just like um, just minor pressure so it was obviously venous but so it was just basically applying gauze and dressing and just putting some you know a lot of tape just to make sure that it was you know intact by the time we went to the OR, the patient was um, laid supine and the arms were out and we like were working two teams. So like trying to, as much as we can not to, you know, to expedite, you know, the, the neck and the arms, but it was obviously that the arm was not something that was really active and really, really life or limb threatening in that patient. So we just, finished the vascular part of the neck and then focused on the arms. And uh, Hefe, um, how, how, would, how important do you think it is, A, how important it is to do a esophagoscopy, in your opinion, as an ENT person, uh, considering the fact that you could clearly see the trajectory of the wound, uh, you had a CT yeah. in the posterior plane and all these things. Um, uh, you guys routinely do it as ENT. I'm not talking about as trauma. Yeah, for us as ENT, how we work with trauma, but you know, an ENT, just to give another perspective. For us as ENT, as what Fahad said before, uh, we use endoscopy a lot in our clinic. So from we can like we can go through the nose or the mouth, and we would visualize the vocal cords. Uh, not, I wouldn't say uh, we we can go beyond the uh, the vocal cords. We have uh, we have our techniques. So we can we can like do uh, another uh, another appointment like after surgery to examine uh, in our clinic. It's it would be easy for us. So you wouldn't really address the esophagus very early unless there was a good reason for it, like heart signs or there was blood in the NG tube. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I thought so. And um, how important do you think it is to get a swallow assessment urgently post-op? Would you say delay it or something like that? Or would you just do it right off the bat? Would it be a routine thing that you would do? Would you give the patient a chance? How often have oh, you seen it improve in, in, your, in your literature? Honestly, um, I don't have a lot of experience. I'm still learning because I'm an R1 resident. But we do refer our patients to a speech therapist. But again, we do, even as ENT surgeon, we do the scoposcopy which is basically a visual examination of the vocal cords and the swallowing. But we do refer them for the speech therapist for the training and for the rehab. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, how did that chest tube go? Uh, well, it, 
it was easy because uh, Fahad was guiding me throughout uh, the procedure. But I'm, again, I'm not the expert. <laughs> so it is really good when you have more than one specialty, I find, in the room. Um, I certainly learn a lot that way, by the way. Uh, like I, I worked with uh, ENT people for most of my residency. Uh, Abdullah Al-Badr, down on your end uh, of the spectrum and specialty. Great surgeon. Uh, Yasin um, Another great surgeon. I've talked about before. I'm biased. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so am I. They're from McGill, so therefore they're the best. And they worked with mm -hmm. me, so they're better than the best. And then they're number one. <laughs> and that's the way that it goes. If you don't like it, then don't listen to this podcast. But <laughs> in all seriousness, I find that, you know, and I've had this debate before with, with other specialties that I work with in, in other fields. Um, I find that when I'm working with somebody else and it's their area of expertise, it's always humbling, right? At that time period. But yeah. when it's time for me to do it, you know, it's like it gives me that extra space of confidence, I find. You know, like when I, when I work with thoracic surgeons and they're doing you know, a delayed repair of an esophagus that I, I sort of stapled off a week ago or something. I usually find that when I go to the OR with them and I'm just holding a retractor, other people think that I'm, uh, it's ridiculous that I'm cutting stitches for this guy. It makes no sense. But for me, I just find it very humbling that I'm watching the, the sheer mess that I've made, you know, poking holes and things and stuff to get the guy off the table. You know, I'm seeing a guy kind of repair it and fix it. And then I go, oh, so that's how you do it. And next time I have to do it, you know, I sort of plan for their surgery. And maybe the time after that, I end up going to the OR and doing more of their case. And then gradually, that's how I, de how I develop my comfort with, certainly with head and neck and chest, that's how I develop my comfort. I'd scrub them who are experts at it. Uh, but yeah. I think that that's a very healthy approach. It's, it's to have that sort of multidisciplinary uh, scrubbing whenever you can situation happening. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's why in our residency, we are doing uh, different rotations, especially in our, uh, when we are juniors, like we recover with the general surgery, we cover with the thoracic to learn from them yeah, and to know. Can, basically, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, I think that that's fairly unique to surgery. I think that we're one of the very few specialties in which, um, you know, there's, you're going to learn from other people, whether you like it or not, the hard way or the easy way. And I think that that's, that's one of the humbling things about surgery. You yeah. know, like in other specialties- We can't work alone, yeah. Like when I did ICU, if I did nephrology, I didn't necessarily jump for joy, right? But in surgery, when I do cardiac surgery, I'm like, well, at least I get to take out veins for the next month as an R1. And then as an R3, well, I'm putting patients on pump and doing the sternotomy. So that's great, you know? So it's, I, I think that that's, that's fairly unique to, to what we do on a daily basis. It's that you're humbled by what you see other people doing, but you're also yeah. learning all the time, I find. I appreciate all the things that I got from my rotation in general surgery. And even before joining the Kuwaiti program, I, like, I worked in general surgery for up to two years and I learned a lot from them. That it's only made me uh, more confident in dealing with trauma cases. Everybody, she's just saying that because she knows that I'm a tutor in the Kuwaiti board. <laughs> I want I'm to pass the exam, exactly. I'm an examiner too, different things. And she knows it, and that's why she said all that. She hates <laughs> Jack. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. Even ben, ben wants to be a plastic surgeon, I swear. I heard him no, say pla it. Plastics? No, 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 no. I no. want to be a 
pediatric surgeon. <laughs> so that this is the other key. Specialty, yeah. Yeah. Pediatrics, that's a very good specialty to go into. Yeah. Anyway, so that's. For, yeah, thank, thank you. Uh, is there anything you guys want to add? You messed um, up? Uh, no, I just want to just um, acknowledge a few people. So Ahmed Samir, uh, he was one, the one of the vascular people who helped us in the case. And Abdurrahman Atiyah, who was from the ENT department, as well as uh, a few other doctors, Noor and Mahmoud, who were very helpful in uh, coordinating the transfer and, you know, calling the OR, bringing the blood and everything that really helped us make the management of this patient the best that we can do. And that's it. And these are some of the references that we use in the cases. And uh, those are our emails. And finally, I just want to say that, say that you know, the Surge podcast by Dr. Saud is a very good podcast. Uh, you can find I'm it on. Now. Yeah, so it's on uh, YouTube, Instagram, and a few other platform. And you can uh, soon, uh, it's going to be on Google Play. And you can actually uh, scan these QR codes and get a link to the podcast itself. Thank you for hosting this, guys. Uh, I hope to have you on again. Um, try and find some more interesting cases. Uh, sure, we'll do. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, doctor. Thanks, guys.